Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship and that we are filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can learn spiritual truth. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable to us and He is the one that converts it into spiritual nourishment for our souls. Let's begin with just a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to worship you through the study of your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We're reminded of what the psalmist said, How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. It is your word that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is your word that you have promised will not go forth in vain. And so we take our time this morning to study it that it may transform the thinking of our minds and the outworking of our lives, that you might be glorified in the angelic conflict and throughout all eternity as we demonstrate the significance of your grace and your love through all the ages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We are studying the opening events in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in chapter 1 the presentation of, of the Messiah, the public presentation through John the Baptist, and as Jesus Christ began to collect his disciples around him, there was uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew. Nathaniel and Philip. And then after collecting his disciples around them, he left and he went to Cana of Galilee where he performed the first of his miracles that was specifically designated by John as a sign. Now this is very important for us to understand this because of the purpose for this gospel. It's so important to continually go back to the purpose for for this uh for why John, to explain why John wrote this, to understand why he has included the episodes that he has included and their significance. The more I study what is going on in these chapters, the more I am amazed at how anybody can get anything more than a very superficial and shallow understanding of the Gospels without a thorough and complete understanding of the Old Testament. Because every page, every episode, almost every other verse has significant Old Testament doctrine behind it. And if you do not understand the Old Testament, how can you really understand what's going on here? Because James, John, Andrew, Peter, all of them had studied the Old Testament. They knew what was going on. They were looking for the Messiah. And they had a very profound understanding of the Old Testament. So John writes, and he is going to collect the credentials of Jesus together to demonstrate his claim that he is the Messiah. This is the point he makes in John 20, 30, and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that is, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So John is very economic in the use of his uh, 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 words and in the use of his episodes. He does not include things just because they were nice stories about Jesus. Everything included feeds this principle. He is marshalling the evidence to show people that Jesus is the Messiah. In this first miracle... Jesus converted the water for purification into wine. Miracles were visual teaching aids. They were the calling cards. They established the credentials of Jesus and later the apostles. And here he takes wine, which the the Gentiles understood as, as a source for joy. And he took the water for purification which the Jews saw in their understanding of the Old Testament, they knew that for man to have true joy, it came only from a purified relationship with God. 
And so Jesus takes these two elements that are present there and he converts the water as a symbol for joy to the Jew into wine, a symbol for joy for the Gentile to show, just to give a foretaste of what he would do as the Messiah, as the source of joy and happiness for mankind. We can see this in Isaiah 35, the first five verses. You don't need to turn there with me. I will just briefly flip over there. In Isaiah 35, it's a messianic prophecy that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. But the rabbis of the time understood this accurately to refer to the Messiah. And listen to what it says. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. Where has Jesus been? He's been in the wilderness and the desert out there with John the Baptist. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and, notice the theme, rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. And waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. So they understood that when the Messiah came, certain things would be accomplished. Sight would be given to the blind. Hearing to the deaf. The lame would be healed and there would be joy. The Messiah would bring joy. And of course, if you have read the Gospel of John, you know that John is going to particularly focus on miracles where sight is given to the blind, where the crippled are able to walk again in order to show that this, specifically to go back to Isaiah 35, 1 through 6, and show that these promises that that foretold what the Messiah would do are specifically fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. And he shows that he is the source of joy as a foretaste of what the Messiah will do when he comes in the millennial kingdom. That was the purpose of the first episode, the first miracle in John 2, 1 through 11. Now we come to John 2, verse 12. After this, that is after the wedding... He went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. So he leaves the high country, higher elevation, up and down, and Israel is always related to elevation. We talk about going up, we mean go north, or go down, we talk about that's going south. But for the Jew living in Israel up and down are always related to elevation. So you always went up to Jerusalem because it was higher. And you go down to other places. And, in, and they, were, they had been in Cana, which was a higher elevation. And now you're going down to the Sea of Galilee at the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum, which is the home of Peter and his brother Andrew and is going to be the temporary abode of Jesus and his family. So he goes to Capernaum to shift his base of operations. Now, why does Jesus begin his ministry in the north, in Galilee, and not down in Jerusalem? We ought to ask, is there some significance to that? If we look at Isaiah 9, we discover a prophetic significance to this. Isaiah said, Isaiah prophesied regarding the northern area of Israel, which was the traditionally the land of the tribe, tribal land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 9.1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, that is God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. That is, at the time Isaiah was writing, uh, the northern kingdom was getting ready to go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. And so, as the Assyrians were were coming in and would wipe out the northern kingdom, there is the promise of a little grace in the midst of judgment. The promise is that he treated the the judgment is he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. So in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, you have a messianic promise that when the Messiah comes, he will come first to the northern area of Galilee, to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and there the people who are in darkness will see a great light, the illumination of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember how John explained this. Let's go back to uh, John chapter 1, verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. This is the title of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So He is a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 9-2. So, so far, in just the uh, first chapter and a half of John, we have seen the fulfillment of prophecy related to John the Baptist, that in Isaiah there would be one who would come who would make straight the way of the Lord. He would be the forerunner, the one who announced the coming of Messiah. We have seen the uh, sign of the miracle of the Messiah as one who fulfilled uh, messianic promises in bringing joy. That's another sign of Old Testament fulfillment. And now we see that he begins his ministry in the north in fulfillment of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. So John is weaving together for us and for anyone who has a knowledge of the Old Testament how Jesus of Nazareth fits the bill. If you go back to the Old Testament, you can see just exactly how he fulfills Old Testament expectations and prophecies for the Messiah. And here in Capernaum, as he set up his base of operations, it says he was with his mother and his brothers, but not his sisters. So he brought his brothers with him. His brothers were four. There was James and Joseph Jr., Judas, and Simon. These are listed in Mark 6.3. And the sisters apparently stayed back in Nazareth. Now this tells us something else, that the position that Mary, we saw last week, the position that Mary had some kind of special position as an intercessor with Jesus was debunked by the way Jesus responds to Mary's suggestion in verse 3 when she comes to him and asking him to solve the problem. He solves the problem, but he doesn't even address her by name. He says, woman, what do I have to do with you? So Mary does not have any special pull with Jesus. She is not an intercessor. She is not uh, a co-redemptrix or anything like that. And not only that, but she is not a perpetual virgin. That doctrine is also taught. Mary had a virgin conception and later a virgin birth, but after that she had many other children. She had four sons and we don't know how many sisters, but the idea that Mary... Uh, remained a virgin just goes back to a lot of platonic ideas that came out of Greek philosophy and a lot of other ideas that have their roots in pagan religions going all the way back to ancient Babylon. So we see that that his family, and one, one other thing we learn is that his brothers do not accept him as Messiah at all until after the resurrection. So there's just no real uh, significance there with his family. He's staying with them but there is not uh, this kind of, even with his mother, this close relationship one might expect on the basis of uh, some things that people teach. Jesus, then we're told in verse 13, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So this tells us that we are in the spring. It is in the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. That was the Jewish calendar month. It was according to their uh, ritual calendar. It's the first month of the year. Their civil calendar begins in September with Rosh Hashanah, but the ritual calendar begins with the first of Nisan in the spring, and the first festival, the first uh, pilgrimage feast was Passover. Now, it was a pilgrimage feast. There were three pilgrimage festivals on the, uh, on the calendar of Israel, on their ritual calendar. The first is is uh, Passover and the Feast of First Fruits. Passover started on the 14th of Nisan. And the next day started the week-long uh, Feast of Weeks or Feast of First Fruits. It was a week-long festival, and usually it was just called the Feast of Passover. And it was a week-long time, and all adult Jewish males were required by the Mosaic Law to come from wherever they were to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So some estimates were that there were as many as two or three hundred thousand extra people 
in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. The same was true at Pentecost. There were, the, the streets were just packed with people and throngs of people on the main feast day cramming their way into the temple in order to bring their sacrifices. So this is the Passover day. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Notice he's down at Galilee. He's down by a water level on the sea. Of, not, not quite sea level, but he's down at the Sea of Galilee near the Jordan River. And he has to go up in elevation to Jerusalem. And there we're told he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. So what's the background here? We have to understand what was taking place in Jerusalem. At this particular time in history, the high priesthood had become not only politicized, but it was almost operating like a mafia family. Annas had been the high priest for a number of years, and he made sure that one of his sons or one of his sons-in-law continued to serve as high priest. So they ran the uh, priestly hierarchy, and out of that they developed several lucrative religious rackets. They had a racketeering operation going based upon uh, a, a religious extortion. What they would do... First, let's get a little understanding here of the temple layout. I have this overhead here which gives us a map of the, our diagram of how the temple was laid out. The walls around the temple along these sides here, east and west sides, were about six to 700 feet long, depending on how you want to understand the length of the cubit. In this northwest corner was the Roman fortress of Antonia where the Roman troops resided and there was a staircase down into the temple court in case there was any trouble then the soldiers had access into the temple courtyard. This outer wall surrounded the temple and the first court that you entered is the court of the Gentiles and the women were allowed, everyone was allowed there, Gentiles, the women and all of the Jews. And it is surrounded in this wall here with a series of porticos. A portico is a porch or a walkway that has a roof supported by columns. Often it leads to the entrance of the building, but these are just these archways supporting the columns that support the wall. Each portico was about 40 feet wide and had two rows of columns each made of a single block of white marble about 35 feet in height. So that gives you an image of how large and majestic this was. I don't know the length of this room, but it would be about maybe two-thirds the length of this room for each portico. And then you had a series of these going all the way, embedded in the walls, all the way around the temple, uh, outside the court of the Gentiles. The court itself was paved with stones, And inside these porticos, the rabbis and Bible teachers would sit and expound the scriptures and they would teach doctrine and and answer questions and explain biblical principles to everyone. And at a time like this at Passover, when you have all of these Jews coming from all over the Roman Empire for for the high Passover day, there would be literally almost hundreds of thousands of Jews coming through here. So it's just cram-packed with people. But something else is going on. With all these foreigners coming in, they had to uh, pay a temple tax and they had to buy animals. They couldn't bring their animals with them. A lamb without spot or blemish was the Passover sacrifice. So they couldn't bring their Paschal lamb with them from Egypt or Babylon or wherever. So they would have to buy one there in the temple precincts. Well, first of all, you get a racket going and you start parceling out uh, who gets the right to sell sacrificial animals in the temple. So Annas and his family controlled the rights as to who got what spot, who could set up their kiosk in the temple precincts. Now, several years ago when I went to Russia, I went over there with uh, Jody Brown and Russia Village Missions, it was just after the wall came down. And what was amazing is along all the major thoroughfares, they would come in in these little 
capitalists would set up their little kiosk, just a little wood building like you have out in your backyard that you store your, your lawn equipment in. And they would set one of those up and they would sell whatever they could get and, and they would buy off the trucks coming in from the West and it'd be Cokes or cookies. And after I was there about a week, you learn that when you're walking down the street, you stop and you look in each one of these kiosks you never know what you're going to get. And I remember one day I found one of those little boxes of Oreos and orange crushes. I took those back to my hotel room and just hoarded those. But if you were going to set up a kiosk in Moscow today, you have to pay an exorbitant fee to the mafia, to the organized crime bosses that are running the city. And so, and you, those uh, kiosk owners still made an enormous amount of money, but they would have to pay uh, maybe fifty to a hundred thousand uh, dollars protection money. And that's in effect what Annas and this crowd were doing. They charged an enormous fee for you to be able to come in and sell sacrificial animals in the temple. And beyond, and another way they made money was to change money because all. The, the taxes, all the temple taxes, all the tithes had to be paid in local Jerusalem coinage. So they would be coming from Egypt or from Rome or Greece or, 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 or Cappadocia or Parthian Empire or wherever. They would have to change their money. And, of course, they charged a high exchange rate where they'd make a good profit on exchanging money. And one writer estimates that it was so lucrative that these money changers were pulling in at least $2.5 million a year in profit. So this was an incredibly lucrative business for Annas and his family and for those who were engaged in this. So here's the scenario. You come into the court of the Gentiles and you see before you just shoulder-to-shoulder crowds, but in the midst of this, what do you hear? You hear the the mooing of the cows and the bleeding of the sheep and all of this noise and ruckus and you see going up, flying up above the columns, you see the doves and the pigeons for the sacrifices for the poor that had escaped from their cages and all of the noise that they make and, you, and the smells of, uh, of the animal dung everywhere and this is in the house of the Lord where they're supposed to be teaching the Word, and the people are there to learn doctrine and to worship the Lord, and yet they're completely distracted by all the chaos, all the noise, and all of the stench that is there. And then, of course, the house of the Lord has been turned into a money-making operation. So the high priest controlled this religious racket, and this was not something that was... That was uh, accepted by everybody. We know from later literature that for decades the rabbis at this time had tried to get rid of this, but they had no power against these bazaars in the temple. And for, for years, uh, hundreds of rabbis had fought this system, and the Talmud gives evidence of that. But this racketeering setup and the power of the uh, of Annas and the high priesthood completely overpowered it, but everybody knew it was corrupt and everybody knew it should not be taking place. So this gives us the background. There was indeed a desire to clean everything up and for a reform to take place in the temple, but nobody had the power to do it. So Jesus walks into the temple and he finds there those who are selling oxen and these are giving, given in descending economic value. They were selling oxen and sheep and doves. And then there were the money changers seated. Now, it's an interesting word here for temple. The word here for temple is the Greek word, hiera. I, it's a rough breathing mark, I-E-R-O. H-I-E-R-O. And this is the word that applies to the entire temple precinct. This includes the outer wall and the inner wall. Now, this is the outer wall, the court of the Gentiles. And as you came in to the inner area, you had the women's court out here where the women were allowed to congregate, but they could go no further. Then here you have the men. Down here on this side you have the Levites. And then only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And this inner area here is referred to by the word Naos, 
N-A-O-S. And Jesus is going to make a point here based on the difference in these two Greek words. One refers to the temple precinct itself and the overall temple, and one refers to the inner area of the Holy of Holies. But in this outer area where the women and the Gentiles, where all men could come and congregate and learn about the Lord and worship, it is there that there is so much distraction. And that is where Jesus cleans the place out because He's removing all the distractions from the study of the Word of God and He wants everyone to have free access. Men, women, everyone. It foreshadows what will take place in the church where uh, sex, male or female, where economic status, slave or free, where ethnic origin, Jew or Gentile, is no longer an issue in terms of access to God. So he walks into the temple and he is just, it's almost a physical, he's almost physically hit in the face with the stench and the noise and the hubbub and all the crowds and he realizes what is taking place. Now, he does this, he cleanses the temple again. The other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all refer to a cleansing of the temple that takes place at the end of his ministry. Only John tells us that he began his ministry with a cleansing of the temple. And this is what he does. Verse 15, And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Now this verse is tough for the anti-violence crowd and the crowd that doesn't think anybody ought to have personal weapons in order to protect their homes or their own personal freedoms because Jesus clearly makes a personal weapon for himself here. He ties together these ropes and he makes a very effective whip and he begins to use it on these people. This is not the mamby-pamby, peacenik Jesus that people are so fond of painting pictures of. This is a very strong, physically powerful man who is going to drive all of these people out. And notice that he is not really opposed. There's a saying by a Texas ranger a hundred years ago. He said, No one can take a stand against a good man who knows he is right and keeps on coming. And everyone there knows that Jesus has the moral high ground. The fact that this is an area of corruption in the temple is not unknown to them. And no one tries to stop him. Notice no one questions him about whether he should be doing this. They all know it's wrong. They've just been allowing it to go on. And they are almost powerless against Annas and his cohorts to stop it. But Jesus physically runs these people out. He picks them up. He throws them out the temple gates. He moves the animals out. But notice he doesn't touch the sacrifices of the poor. He drives out the sheep and the oxen, but he leaves the doves and the pigeons in their cages. To those who are selling the doves, in verse 16, he said, take these things away and stop making my father's house a house of merchandise, and literally the Greek word is emporio, which is where we get our English word emporium, a house of merchandise. And he runs them out. Now, the background to this must be found again in the Old Testament. In Zechariah 14.21, there's a prophecy regarding the millennium that every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Now, by this time, by the time Zechariah wrote, you were not having a fight between Israel and the Canaanites. The term Canaanite had had become, by that time, a Hebrew idiom for a Gentile merchant. Uh, are, are any for and then for any merchant whatsoever. So Zechariah 14:21 is prophesying that there will be a time when the Messiah comes that there will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord of hosts, that they would be driven out and there would be purification in the temple. 
And that is what is partially fulfilled here in John chapter 2, the purification of the temple. So just as the turning of the water into wine in the first part of this chapter is a promissory, promissory note of the joy that the Messiah will eventually provide, so the removal of the animals is a promissory note of the eventual cleansing of the world and worship in the millennium. John is giving us Jesus' credentials. This is Jesus' calling card. He comes into town as the Messiah and he cleanses the temple. And when he does this, when he drives everyone out and he says this, and his disciples, these six men who are standing by the sidelines or watching this, remember, they know their scriptures. It was Nathaniel who was meditating on Jacob's ladder, sitting out under a fig tree. It was James and John who were disciples of John the Baptist because they were looking for the Messiah and they were searching the Scriptures. So they understand the Messianic prophecies. And while they are watching this, they remember Psalm 69 where it is said of the Messiah, The zeal for thy house will consume me. And so the disciples are beginning to put two and two together as they reflect upon Old Testament prophecy and see its fulfillment before their very eyes. And then we come to verse 18. And notice what happens here. Do you notice anything interesting in that first phrase? The Jews therefore answered and said to him. The Jews answered him. Did he ask them a question? Did he ask them? No, he didn't ask them a question. What he did was asking a question. Because he came in there and his cleansing of the temple was a statement that I am the Messiah. I have the right, I have the authority to cleanse this temple. And they are now they're going to ask him, what sign do you give to show us? He is saying by his actions, do you accept me as the Messiah? And so now they want a sign. And this shows their spiritual darkness. This shows the depravity that is there. Because he has just given them a sign. He has just fulfilled prophecy before their very eyes by walking into the temple and cleansing it. The disciples understood this as they reflected on Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a Davidic psalm about the righteous sufferer. Psalm 69.4 says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. And so what the psalmist is saying in his context is those who are aligned with the cause of God develop many, out, many powerful enemies in the cosmic system. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. This is the plea of the righteous sufferer, which is repeated again in John 15:24, when Jesus applies it to himself. Those who hate me without a cause. Psalm 69.8 is another messianic prophecy from this psalm. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. In John 7.3-5, Jesus applies this verse to himself. For his mother and his brothers did not understand him. Another indication that Mary, is, even though she had all those wonderful things said to her at the birth of Jesus, there is a time when she's not sure what this son of hers is doing. She can't put it together. And he is estranged from his family. And that is seen in John 7, 3 through 5. And then in Psalm 69, verse 9, we read, For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee have fallen upon me. And Jesus is saying here that this is a picture of the rejection of the Word of God in that day and time. That they were negative to doctrine and negative to truth. They had rejected God incarnate and they were taking a Levitical law and they were using it to abuse the people. And then when Jesus comes in and identifies himself with God by saying that, um, stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. When he uses that phrase, my father, and identifies himself with Yahweh, the Old, the Old Testament term for God, he is rejected. And this is so significant because later on, these key people who he offends at this particular time 
are the ones who are going to crucify Him. He antagonizes them on this day and they never get over it. And when He is brought to trial, they're going to go back to this very episode and they're going to say, remember, this is the man who said that when he tore the temple down that he would rebuild it in three days. They take him out of context. That's not what he says. In verse 19, he says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. But when his trial comes, they twist his words and they say, he's the one who said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it. So they use what he says at this initial episode in his ministry as a means for indicting him before Pontius Pilate. And they twist his words and take him out of context. So he identifies himself with Yahweh, and because of his identification with God, they reject him. Psalm 69.21 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And here we see what happened, a prophecy of what happens when Jesus is on the cross, and he says, I thirst. This verse is quoted in Matthew 27, verse 48. So Psalm 69 is a picture of the crucifixion. And John, at this, telling us about this early stage of Jesus' ministry, is already foreshadowing the crucifixion. He is preparing us for the crucifixion. Jesus came to die. That's why He lives. Acts 1.20 applies Psalm 69.25 to Judah. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. So here we see a very significant prophecy in Psalm 69 that tells of many things that were fulfilled at the first advent in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the, disciples, the Jews come to him and they say, what sign do you show us? And they reveal their spiritual depravity and their darkness because everything that he has done is a sign. The same is true today. People today are looking for spiritual truth. They are looking for spiritual reality. They talk about their spiritual life. You can turn on the TV any day, any talk show, and you'll find people talking about what is needed for spirituality. But their concept of spirituality has nothing to do with what the Bible says about spirituality. Their concept of spirituality is something they have just generated on their own from whatever it is that makes them feel like they have some kind of relationship with the other, whatever that may be whatever makes them feel like somehow they're living above the everyday material world. And nobody wants to look at the Bible as the source of truth. So the spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness of the religious Jews is the same as today. Just because people are religious doesn't mean they have a clue to spirituality. In fact, the more religious people are, the less of a clue they have to spiritual reality. When these Jews come to Jesus and they question Him, they are in essence asking Him for His authority. By what authority do you do all of this? And Jesus' answer to them is very sophisticated and very subtle. Jesus has some of the most sophisticated arguments in Scripture. They are simple and they are profound. And when they have ignored the one sign He's already given, He says, he gives them another sign. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In effect, what Jesus is saying is, You're going to provide this sign yourself. You're going to crucify me. And in three days after that, I will be resurrected physically from the grave, and I will conquer death. Verse 20, the Jews completely misunderstood him. They said it took 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? They do not understand that what has gone on as the, as the disciples did in verse 17. Zeal for thy house will consume me. Yet they should have known it. They should have gone back to Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3, we have the prophecy, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. This is the God speaking. I'm going to send my messenger. That's John the Baptist. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. What does Malachi 3.1 say? That the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. And that is exactly what happens here. Malachi 3.2 But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. For he will, and that means that he is coming. This is a picture of the Messiah coming in judgment of the temple. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So they should expect the Messiah to come as the purifier, as the one who is going to cleanse the temple. But when they see that, they completely ignore it. And in ignoring it, they seal their doom and they will use this again against Jesus when he comes back. Now, one of the things I want to note here is that so many people get distorted about the love of Jesus. And they always talk about how Jesus loves everybody. And it just shows how our average concept of love is silly, it's superficial, it's caught up with a lot of warm fuzzies, and as long as we just sort of feel good about ourselves and have this sentimental sense that everything's okay. But that's not what we see with Jesus. What we see with Jesus is that true love goes far beyond anything like that. True love involves judgment at times. True love involves purification. True love even involves committing violence because Jesus goes in and violently cleanses the temple when He throws everybody out. This is a love that elevates truth and doctrine above everything else. This is a love that elevates the realities of the spiritual life and spiritual truth above everything else. That's what true love is. True love is not the kind of pastor that comes in and always glad hands everybody and pats them on the back and, and gives them a hug. And you see, go to churches like that and he always has a kind word for everybody, pats the babies on the head, kisses them, all that sort of thing. The true love that is shown by a pastor who loves his flock is the pastor who spends every day digging into the Word of God so that he can feed the sheep. So you can't grow spiritually unless a pastor feeds you. That's why he's called a pastor. That's the role of a pastor to a flock of sheep. He's the leader. And his job is to take those sheep where they can find food and water so that they can have the nourishment that they need in order to grow. That's the role of the pastor. That's what true love is. It's not a loving pastor, a loving shepherd who walks around and picks up every sheep and pets it and loves it, but doesn't feed it, doesn't water it. See, most pastors are running around. They never feed anybody anything. But they're petting everybody. They're giving them all those positive strokes. And nobody can grow. And everybody feels good. And they go home and they say, wasn't it good to be there this morning? He, he's just so warm and He's so nice and they focus on personality and they focus on feeling good and they're not growing and they're not learning anything and they may feel good and they may feel like they were close to God but I don't know who they were close to but it had nothing to do with the truth of Scripture. So, Jesus exemplifies what true love is here. True love is focusing on doctrine. True love is removing the distractions that kept people from learning the truth in the temple. True love involves, at times, violence and judgment and cleansing the temple. So the Jews don't understand any of that and they focus on just the physical. And in verse 19, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, He changes His verb to naos. Um, changes the noun from, from hieros, the outer temple, to naos, which can also refer to the temple of the body. And this is what becomes apparent to John and the disciples years later. It wasn't apparent then. Like the Jews, it sounds like Jesus is saying, is saying, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three years. And they're just confused. And they're saying, well, the temple, that is, this inner area here, this is the naos. It, took them, it was still under construction at this time, and it had been under construction for 46 years, and it's not going to be until 62 A.D. that that's going to be completed, and then it's destroyed in 70. So, it still isn't complete, and Jesus is saying, is really not talking about that at all, but that's what they think He's talking about. But John, years later, after reflecting on this, says in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple 
of his body. He's already foreshadowing the resurrection. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, not until then. They don't remember this when he says it. They remember it when he is resurrected from the dead. He was ra- when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, does that mean that that's when they were saved? No, it doesn't. We're going to come back next week and take another look at the doctrine of faith because it's very critical to understanding what takes place in the next two or three verses. And there is much confusion in in the church about the next two or three verses and a very critical passage for issues related to the whole lordship, salvation, controversy and just exactly what the gospel consists of and what you must do in order to be saved. And so we will look at that next time. But the disciples' belief here is not related to salvation. They're already saved. It has to do with their spiritual growth, their understanding of other doctrines related to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so after the resurrection, they're saved, but now they're going to believe that Jesus is all that He claimed to be and they will see, put, begin to put all of these signs together to understand their dynamic and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, what is the significance of this episode? It has a long-range impact. Although John talks about the first cleansing of the temple, and he quotes this, it's not quoted in Matthew 26, 60, uh, in Matthew at all. Uh, these... This episode is not in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in Matthew 26.60, during the trial, this is brought up again by his accusers. So these false witnesses misquote Jesus as saying, I am able to destroy the temple, rather than what he did say, which is, you... I will raise it up, referring to his body. So that's introduced as court evidence. But the only place this episode shows up in the understanding of the, in, in the Scriptures anywhere is right here at John. So this shows us that Matthew's familiar with John, and it also shows that this event has significance beyond just the prophetic fulfillment. It will be used at Jesus' trial. Then again, in Matthew 27, verse 40, the mob remembers this before the crucifixion of Jesus. And they go back and they say, but this is the man who said, he's hanging on the cross, you said that you would destroy the temple. Uh, If it was destroyed, you would raise it up in three days. Well, save yourself if you can. If you could rebuild the temple in three days, why don't you save yourself right now? Then in Acts 6.13, this episode is brought up again during Stephen's trial when he is accused of blasphemy. They remind the court that he's a follower of that man who said that if he would tear down the temple, that he would build it up again in three days. So this was a statement that rankled. It got under the skin. It challenged them to the very core of their religious beliefs. And again, in Acts 21-28, now remember this is some 20 or 30 years later, in Paul's trial in Jerusalem, it's brought up again. So apparently this was a common accusation of blasphemy that was brought against Christians because they blasphemed, they were following this man who had blasphemed the temple by saying that if he tore it down, he could rebuild it in three days. So time and again we see this. Now, as we conclude, what is the doctrine that John wants us to focus on here? Is that after the temple is destroyed... God's place, God has a unique place with men. Jesus recognizes this by His cleansing of the temple. And we see it again in Revelation 21-22. After all is said and done, God will have His own temple on the earth. It's not out in the Andromeda galaxy somewhere. It's right here on the earth. We learn from this that theologically, earth is the center of the universe and God wants to make His habitation with men. God wants fellowship with man. Jesus Christ did not incarnate Himself on some other planet light years away or in some other galaxy, but He did it right here on planet earth. And that shows us that this planet has significance. 
It's not just another rock floating in the universe. But God has a specific plan and everything that God is doing is centered on planet Earth. It is here that the angelic conflict is resolved. It is here that God will tabernacle with men. It is here that God will reside throughout all eternity in a new heaven and new earth. God is moving history forward so there will be a time of universal fellowship with God for all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How do we have that fellowship? Because Christ who came to destroy, came to die on the cross for our sins was destroyed. His temple, His body was destroyed and three days later He was raised from the grave to, to vindicate His payment for our salvation. And our, all of our sins were paid for completely on the cross by Jesus Christ. And all we have to do to, to receive that payment is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. No works are involved. We'll come back and see the importance of faith next Sunday. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this time to look at Scripture and how marvelously the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And this gives us confidence in the veracity of Scripture and the veracity of our faith. That Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the one who fulfilled all of these promises. And He is the one who went to the cross and died as our substitute that we might have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, who has never put their faith alone in Christ alone, that right now they would do that. All they have to do is say silently to you, in the privacy of their own soul, forming words and thought alone, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's it. That's all that's necessary. You don't have to do anything Jesus did at all. Salvation is a free gift. It is yours for the taking. All you have to do is accept it. Our Father, we thank You for the things that we have learned. May they encourage us in the coming days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.